Thank you for inviting me today. I'm uh, Murray Weston. I'm director of the British University's Film and Video Council, um, which um, is an organization, a central organization in the UK, which is doing some of this sort of work to deliver content uh, to universities in particular for learning, teaching, and for research. We're there. Um, I'll just give a bit of background to who we are. Um, we promote the production, the study, and the use of moving image and sound. Uh, in UK higher education and research. Now, um, most of our resource is focused on the United Kingdom. Some of the things we do are made widely available, and um, I'll show you some of those things in a moment. Um, we were set up in 1948, so we weren't just set up a few years ago, and um, we were in the British Film Institute from 1968 onwards and left in 1982, and we have our own life now under the UK Higher Education Funding Councils. We're funded with core funding. We're a company limited company charity status, so we trade and we earn money. It's a non-profit organization, which we put back into the core. And we receive about a million dollars a year at the core. It's about 500,000 pounds a year on the current exchange rate. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, we have subscribing members. Uh, the way it works is we, we provide value to all universities in the United Kingdom. In fact, anyone who wants to get into our website but the particular things which need to be sustained have to be paid for, and there's a subscription from universities that join. So there's around 230 institutions all joined. There's about 200 institutions which you could call university standing in the UK, and um, we have many of them in, but not all in membership, um, and they get various services and so on. And, um, but as I say, some of our stuff goes out widely online, and uh, we undertake not only uh, sort of service development, but uh, research and project development as well. That's the front page of our website, and um, I'm going to gallop through now because I feel I've got far too much to try to pass on to you, and uh, I apologise if I do sort of ramble, um, but I'm going to try to get through as fast as I can. I'll try to take you through some of the reasons why I think moving pictures are used at all in education, which sounds rather sort of bring us down uh, a little bit because really I'm a service provider and uh, we want to have an effect with the work we do. Um, so the question is what, what are moving images used for in education? And I think all of this stuff is fairly elderly. Um, there's the instrumental use, of course. That's illustration. Um, the audiovisual aid and what a burden uh, that has been to us in many ways. Um, as well as the burden of having entertainment take moving pictures away from scientists who first invented them, in effect. Because I think you know, this legacy is, has, um, has um, held us up somewhat in getting the content into the scholarly world. Um, as enrichment is a word that's used regularly, but um, let's say working in the affective domain, let's talk about Bloom's taxonomy, maybe, for a moment, uh, because there are different ways people learn, changing hearts and minds, learning things, the cognitive, or learning how to do things, the psychomotor. I think these are quite important ideas, which quite elderly about human behavior, but terribly important to us. And then, and I might say, we, we're right in the heart of this, as primary resource, a primary uh, record, or secondary record, uh, capable of use and to be continuously referable, um, long-term, to rely on it being there as standard content, to look back at, to write about, to review, and to engage with on a continuous basis. And then as a scientific device, the scientists, we had a book that just came out recently, 
It's an old book, just recently reprinted. It's Italian, uh, written by Virgilio Tozzi. Um, it's now called Cinema Before Cinema. Of course, science invented moving pictures. Then the Lumiere brothers and one or two other fairground and fit-up merchants came along and made it entertainment. And um, arguably, there's still a lot to be said about um, moving image as a fundamental research tool. And then as live communication, of course, now see a lecture, drop into a conference, talk to your peers online, and as a creative medium. Now, it's fairly sort of basic uh, analysis. But right now, I'm going to look at some of those things which we do, which tend to focus on the things which are in red here, uh, rather than those other things here. That's today, anyway. We're interested in all of these. Now, the moving pictures, their status in scholarship. Um, I might say 30-something years ago when I started in this field, I thought it was a done deal. And my God, it still isn't. And um, it's disheartening, really. Uh, I told you we were, our organization started in 1948. And I look back to the journal articles written in 1949, 1950. We'd probably be reading them now and just change one or two words and be the same messages. And we haven't got very far. Um, we've had just about 100 years of recorded moving pictures. But unlike text in the United Kingdom, and I don't know enough about the, uh, the US, um, we have no statutory deposit. We have no unified national catalog. We've got poor research access, in fact, almost non-existent research access. We've got no interlibrary loan, which is standard in the UK for a book. You go to the smallest library in the UK and order a book, and three or four weeks later, it'll come from somewhere on the library network. We've got no arrangements for fair dealing. Um, you call it fair use over here. This is all changing, because we have just reviewed this, because fair dealing broadcasting and film is not included in our fair dealing arrangements yet. Um, we've got no developed culture of reference or review from a scholarly perspective, in my view. There's a Times Literary Supplement, but we haven't got a Times Moving Image Supplement. Uh, it's just indicative of where we are. We're right in the backwoods. And there's very rare integration of this content with text sources. And there is poor or non-existent teacher training for use in the United Kingdom. Um, all sorts of things are taught to teachers about teaching, but very little about engagement with moving image content and um, what you can expect to find and how to find it and all those sorts of things. So we've got a huge uphill struggle still. I want to show you a bit of movie just to break things up a bit. I think the public is more likely to be concerned at the extraordinarily intemperate language which is coming out on behalf of the Prime Minister in your name. The story was a lie. It is a lie. Correct. Weasel words, weasel not incidentally spelt correctly, uh, in consistent terms with the original well, fake if I dossier. If I may say so, the statement that you're reading from was read to the Press Association. So that, that I, I wouldn't get hung up on a spelling mistake by somebody who's, who's typed it. Although I know that you and you also, John, reported the four people in my office were responsible for writing the so-called dodgy dossier when they were not. However, put that to one side. The reason that is weasel words is it does not answer the questions that I put. I asked the BBC whether they were standing by the allegation they made the BBC made, as John Humphreys described it, the BBC made the allegation that we deliberately exaggerated, abused, and the answer to that question the that you put to the BBC, to the, question, the answer to the question you put to the BBC, do they stand by it? The answer is yes. The answer, a robust yes. Excuse me. That letter is about as robust as Blackburn Rovers wore when they played Trelleborgs. 
<laughs> now, um, I don't know whether you saw this in the US. You may well have done, um, because it, there's reference to the build-up to the Iraq War. The uh, question is, though, what was that recording? When was it recorded, and by who? Why was it recorded? What were they talking about? What is the dodgy dossier? Who were the people in it? How and when was the recording released? How many people saw it? Is there any other related content? Is this sequence likely to have long-term value? And how can I get hold of it? And what can I do with it? Well, that came from ITN, and in fact, we had a group of 12 people at that time working in there at that moment when it happened. Um, some of you will be able to answer some of those questions, but some of you won't. Many of you will not know who that guy was uh, and exactly what he was talking about. And the, my point about this is metadata is king. Um, the provenance, the, the origin of this content and so on, it is so important. If we strip this away, if we harvest the stuff in such a way that you do not know what this means, we're in deep trouble. And I think the people from Google and other places that seem to be making so much money realize that metadata means much more than the content that's being delivered. It's a bit like farming. I said this the other day. You know, farmers' prices are going down and down and down, and yet somehow the supermarkets are making more and more money, certainly in the United Kingdom. How can that be? The producers are not, you know, the content somehow doesn't get monetized in quite the same way as the metadata at the moment. The middleman. Um, but what do most teachers and students want? Uh, and this is a fairly primitive um, explanation, but I hope it's gone into most of the nooks and crannies. Uh, High-quality finding systems and provenance, detailed links, uh, simple and elegant access to arrangements to the content, maximum flexibility in licensing for reuse, long-term access in perpetuity, perhaps, opportunities for exchange and use locally, and license for public demonstration of their work. Now, I said earlier that um, we have to find ways to sustain the work we do. And philosophically, I'm very keen on open access and open content. At the same time, we have to find a way to get the funds in to do the work and to sustain it. And so we're very much subscription-based at the moment. Um, and we use authenticated access for UK students with the greatest flexibility, we hope, for access to the content we deal with. Now, news from online is a big thing we're just finishing. And I'm going to have to now speed up because I can see the clock is ticking away. We've just come out of their offices, and um, I think it's one of the greatest collaborations for a long time between academia and a full-on commercial uh, television company. 3,000 hours of content um, in three file formats. Um, that's 65,000 seg segments and around 10 million thumbnails that derived from the movies. You can get very nice still pictures out of movies as you encode them, which are quite valuable. Um, and we hope to release this, or at least JISC, the Joint Information Systems Committee, which gives us quite a lot of money, hopes to deliver that uh, within six months. Now, some of that stuff can be seen online already in a placeholder website, which you can actually play with from anywhere in the world and download the content. And the key to this is we don't do streaming, we do download. So you get a copy to play with, as I've been playing with that one, of Alistair Campbell, his name of the guy, um, and John Snow doing the interviewing. Um, ITN let us have full run of their archive, basically. We came with about two million pounds of government money, um, and we've come away with 3,000 hours. It works out around 600 pounds an hour. In fact, previous work we've done is 600 pounds an hour to get it ready, do the metadata, encode it, get it ready to go up. And that's our sort of benchmark at the moment. 
with good quality catalogers. And um, on this site, you can search, and we can then, um, and this is one which you could go and play with yourself later on. Uh, this is one I've just downloaded. A sea of placards by the River Thames, each saying no to war in Iraq. Marching through the streets of London, sending a message to Tony Blair and George W. Bush, not in my name. It's the scale of the protest that is unprecedented. Organizers say two million people, though police say less than half that number. It's the biggest rally ever on British soil. Made up of pacifists, Christian groups, Muslim organizations. And many, many Labour supporters. The real Tony Blair certainly wasn't here. His father-in-law, however, was. If you have a message for the government, what would it be? Give peace a chance. And thousands upon thousands of ordinary people galvanised into action, many for the first time, by the belief that an invasion of Iraq cannot be justified. So that was before it all happened. Um, and um, we've got bundles of stuff now which we'll be able to look back at on the dodgy dossier and everything else. And I think for years and years to come, there'll be analysis going on of what did happen and who was duping who, who, and so on. Um, another thing we've worked on is now expressing itself as film and sound online. 7,000 items, and these are about 500 hours of movies, um, and a music collection. Um, segmented, we segment our stuff. We know you can get the whole movie, but we also have them in bits. Um, behind an authentication barrier, um, the music sounds something like this. Well, way down, but never mind. Um, and this is music we've licensed for bending, stretching, doing what you like with, and it is some of the finest stuff to come out of Abbey Road Studios, one of George Martin's colleagues and um, we have the right to do that in perpetuity. Um, and that's been proved to be useful. This is what we call the scratch and sniff contract as you go into the website. At the bottom there, you've got to do something and say, yes, I agree. Um, but all students and staff in UK universities can have access to this. And it's progressive download. This is the interface we didn't build. Uh, and here um, is an example. Trials of Alger Hiss, one of the great movies, John Lowenthal's movie we have up. It's a three-hour magnum opus documentary, some of you may know. Um, and um, this is the sort of metadata we put together. And uh, you can scroll down. This is the bit about the segment. Um, and you can download in Windows Media or whatever, standard stuff, QuickTime. And you've got it to use, as I'm trying to right now. Um, our license, by the way, allows me to show it to you today for promotion and to express what we're doing. I'm afraid probably I won't be able to sign the bit of docket later for it to be distributed again, but that's another thing we can talk about, um, under Creative Commons, that is. And um, this is the piece Sorry, Sorry I've got quite a lot of... The purpose of this group at that time was not primarily espionage. Its original purpose was the communist infiltration of the American government. But espionage was certainly one of its eventual objectives. Right after Chambers finished his testimony, we received a wire from Alger Hiss asking for the opportunity to be heard on his side of the case. And so we gave him that chance just two days later. A little uh, exchange went on between Mr. Hiss and Mr. Nixon. 
Nixon, which is not in the record, in which Mr. Hiss said, I am a graduate of Harvard Law School, and I believe yours is Whittier. And uh, this just absolutely ripped Mr. Nixon apart. A very big thing which we've got online, and it is the biggest thing, in fact, I think in the UK, it's the only post-transmission access uh, route to records of broadcast in the United Kingdom. We decided a few years ago to start ingesting with a subscription to big database provider all the television and radio records for reception in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's around 350 channels. Um, and it amounts to 1.3 million records a year. We're up to 7.8 million records so far, so you can roughly work out how long we've been doing this. Um, and under a special license under UK law, we can record any broadcast we like, pretty much. And so we're recording 44,000 hours a year of UK television. We've been doing that since 1998, so we've got a huge stock, around 300,000 hours of television, maybe a bit more. We're doing seven channels 24-7. And we'd like to do more, but you know, every time you add a channel, it gets another incremental cost. And this is really supported by subscription because we're allowed to provide copies of programs to students and staff in universities under license for use on campus in learning and teaching. Um, and it is a marvelous bit of UK law. We've got 22,000 registered users there. It's an authenticated system, this. And were you to get into it, you'd see something like this. It actually receives the data 10 days in advance of transmission, so we can actually, you can set up your own thing so it tells you what programs are coming on in any channel receivable, which might be on volcanoes or whatever you're interested in. I don't know, you know, it might be on George Bush, and you set up a little routine, say, I'm interested in George Bush. Any programs that come in, say, you know, and it'll send you an email saying they're coming up on these channels. Um, it's a very elegant thing, and it's, it's probably our sort of, what do you might call, killer application uh, to help to, um, assist us in being. Um, the 44,000 hours a year, um, if you do a search, you'll find there's a little pinger here somewhere. There's a little identifier. Automatically, the system uh, will tell you whether we have a copy. And uh, the interesting thing is it uses a unique identifier number so that if the same program arrives on another channel at some point in the future, which we don't record, it'll still ping up to say we got a copy, because even though we didn't record the channel, if you understand. I'm saying. Um, and that's very handy because programs move around all over the place. This was a search for George Bush, I think. Um, and, um, and it was going back uh, six months. I don't know what this is. There's some sort of satirical program about George Bush. We can provide this physically through the post. Um, we're just moving to a licensing arrangement where we may be able to provide, just throw the switch so people can go into our hard disk based system which is ingesting this content. Uh, it's like a giant TiVo box, so the university staff can go straight from the database and say, I want a copy of that now. It won't come immediately. It'll come in storm forward. It'll come during the night and arrive. Um, but I don't think I can show you this. Uh, for all the obvious reasons, we didn't clear the rights in this to show you. And I probably breached all sorts of rights. And, um, the big fear is what's going to happen if, if you have breached rights. Um, I carry now five million pounds worth of professional indemnity insurance. That's $10 million at US current currency rates. 
uh, paid for by someone else um, because the responsibility for these things delivered into UK universities rests on my shoulders. The UK government won't take any responsibility for anything, so it, if anything goes to the UK government funded agencies, they send the letter to me because I've said, yes, you can do it. Um, that's one way of handling things. I know the um, rights people at Lloyd's didn't, I mean the, uh, the PI people at Lloyd's didn't fully understand the use of the insurance in that way, but um, that's what we've done. Now, um, we have gone about clearing rights in the conventional sense, in the way that we have contracts with owners. The ITN content, by the way, is in perpetuity. It's progressive download. It's all staff and students of the United Kingdom, bona fide staff and students of the United Kingdom. Whether they're sitting in the UK or abroad, which is useful, so that they can sit in Hong Kong as long as they're registered with a UK university. Um, and now the uh, ITN has told BUFEC that we may be able to <coughs> issue a license to US universities if we would like to discuss it. So we'd like to find another organization, not like BUFEC, we could talk to. I don't think we could easily talk to all the universities, but um, it would be nice to see the central organization which might help us to do that. Um, I think rights clearance, you've got to stare the monster in the face. Um, and you've got, to, you've got to go for these things, and I think we're making headway. And I think what's happened now, there is greater collaboration with owners. Whatever people say, there is something giving in the system. Uh, when we first went to ITN, they wanted £2,000 a minute for digitization rights. This was in 1994, and um, the whole process had not matured, and I said, bye then, you know. It's all changed. We paid £100 an hour for the rights component for the ITN content in perpetuity. So it's a tokenistic payment, really. Um, I don't think that's breaching any sort of uh, uh, confidentialities at all. Um, I think it's a growing understanding of education's needs, and indeed the chief executive officer at the time, Stuart Purvis of ITN and Reuters, or Reuters Television, was, um, he said, look, this is my career as much as anything else that you're going to be putting down, and uh, I'd like to see that happen. And um, I think they're sort of on our side, and uh, I think we need the dialogue. Um, we've got this formal review, which is just going on in the United Kingdom. We call it the Gowers Review, which is actually extending exceptions, but getting very hard with remedies if you uh, breach things. So it's interesting that things are softening up in one way, but getting harder in another. And I think this is not a bad thing. Um, and there are going to be new licensing arrangements to be offered within copyright exceptions. That's the, when you break the monopoly of copyright, which we can do under the Berne Convention in certain cases. And the sharing licenses, like Creative Commons, yeah, fair enough. I needed it. Um, and I know Paul would be likely to talk about that in a moment. Um, they're coming forward. I see this as a patchwork quilt of delivery. I'm not bothered that there's YouTube there, really, because I think there are free handouts, free newsletters, free all sorts of things around. And then there's the high-quality, high-value stuff, which you may have to pay a small amount for somewhere, with some license right at the top level, which um, is free at the point of use. Um, I think we... Um, no, right, by, by high quality, I meant high quality metadata and all the rest of it. I mean, the, the fact is the thing is structured, content is structured so you can find it and get the provenance and, and all that stuff, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, people put print on notice boards, they put print in parish newsletters, they, they you know, agit prop has been around a long time. I think, you know, it's, the fact is what we're trying to do is to build a corpus of scholarly engagement with this type of content. Um, I hope, 
um, which stands slightly differently from that which is all over the place. I think it's terrific, and it's also when I just thought I would just do a little shout out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I do think international harmonization is something we're all going for in all of these things, and I think G8 is probably trying to do that because I think there's been a review here of um, exceptions and so on. And I think we do need greater communication with rights owners rather than less. Uh, it's important because they will come on board if we talk in the right talk at the right times.